The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Film Jitsu, the podcast that wields films like deadly weapons. We are your hosts. I am Jay. And I am Mike. This week, we'll get Mike's views on the 2018 Muppets Gone Bad flick, The Happy Time Murders. We'll also be counting down our respective bottom five puppets, a list of horrific or horrifically rendered film characters, either on strings or with a hand or more up their ass. After that, we'll offer up some staff picks for the week. And finally, Mike will announce what cursed cinematic abomination he's chosen for me to watch as revenge for my pick this week. But before all that, though, it's time to get happy. Or something. What the? Someone out there <gasps> is killing puppets. Wait, wait, what? This movie seems stupidly good. Huh? Is that what I think it is? What do you think it is? There it is! That is good shit! Well, fuck me! Maybe! <laughs> The Happy Time Murders. Mike, you did this to yourself. First by slapping me with cats in our debut episode, and then going for the early KO with Mandy shortly after. I have to admit, I'd been pulling my punches until this week when I subjected you to a movie so bad that before it was released, it was sued for its tagline, No Sesame, All Street. But like the Sesame Workshop, which lost its lawsuit, Viewers of this multi-Razzie winner, too, were the losers, and now you have joined their ranks. There are no winners in this story, Jason. <laughs> nobody nobody comes out on top. I, I think you're ahead of the game, certainly. I think out of all of the episodes we have done, this one is so far absolutely the most in the spirit of what film jitsu truly can be. There are waypoints in any journey, right? There, there are markers along the way. This is going to be one of them. This is the first, like, real, no, you go fuck yourself moment of our show here. It's a, it's a confounding bit of absolute fucking madness. I don't know how this movie ever came to be. I'm hoping that you can offer a little background on how all of this happened. You picked the movie. I feel as though you're responsible for telling us about I it. Can tell you, I can tell you a little bit what I know about puppets fucking and stuff like that on screen <laughs> because... oh, do we have that kind of time <laughs> well i mean in 1976 oh. there was a movie that was created called let my puppets come by gerard damiano who just happened to be the director and producer of deep throat this conversation uh, to... has already gone so much further than i thought it was gonna go <laughs> jesus christ and then of course in 1989 you had peter jackson's meet the feebles Indeed. This is and, absolutely cut from the Meet the Feebles cloth. So, you know, we are talking about modern Feebles. This is a film brought to us directly from the creative mind of Brian Henson, the chairman of the Henson companies. The last thing that this guy did back in, I think, 1996, we got Muppet Christmas Carol, Muppet Treasure Island. And then for 22 years, <laughs> Brian Henson went into the wilderness <laughs> And something happened to the man <laughs> because he emerged with uh, what is possibly 
the most disgusting puppet movie I've ever seen. And I've seen Meet the Feebles. And I have to tell you, this movie is not as viscerally disgusting as Meet the Feebles, but it really, really wants to be. And I know that I've asked this before about other things, but the big question that I have for this entire thing is who was this movie for? Because it has way too much fucking to be for kids and way too many Muppets to be for adults. And so instead we get a movie in this bizarre limbo that at best, at best is a funnier die sketch. And so drawn out into a feature, I was checked out on the novelty of this movie almost immediately and was left with the rest of a feature length film with a very mundane, boring story That was like wholesale lifted from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Like just major plot points were just ripped off. And there really aren't a lot of major plot points. The story here is about a detective who used to be a police officer in a world where puppets and humans coexist. There is absolutely a second class citizen uh, thing going on here. Not in a way that has any sort of social commentary or nobody's thought about <laughs> what that might mean. The implications of that. There's there's no subtext really to any of this. It's mostly about puppet fucking. But <laughs> this is not Avenue Q. <laughs> no, Phil, <laughs> Phil Phillips is our private eye, former police detective who worked alongside Detective Connie Edwards, played by Melissa McCarthy in what might be a bridge too far for Melissa McCarthy and her shtick. She's absolutely Oof. the right actress for this kind of role because she's just foul mouthed and over the top in a way that often serves her very well. But in here, it's sort of exposed for what it is that a lot of Melissa McCarthy's charm and charisma has to do with her material. Because when she's in something like Bridesmaids, I think she's very funny. The Saturday Night Live bits she was doing as Sean Spicer, really good stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She doesn't have a whole lot to work with here. She's biting puppets in the dick. Biting oh. puppets in the puppet dick is <laughs> oh, what happened. Wait, wait. So who's worse? Melissa McCarthy in The Happy Time Murders or Charles Grodin in The Great Muppet Caper when he's like coming on to Miss Piggy? What's more disturbing? I'm not going to kink shame most of the time. Puppet fucking's weird. I don't know what to tell you about that. Puppet <laughs> fucking's see, weird. see, isn't... Why does it keep happening? What is it that is so attractive? Because I think there's something very perverse lying under all of this it's that idea of the taboo the forbidden something like jim henson and the muppets and it's this pure thing so what could be better than that than the complete other end of the spectrum there's an attraction i think for people to just say oh well if we're going to do it this way we'll just we'll just subvert expectations by doing a complete 180 which isn't creative it's just the other direction so This is kind of a by-the-book, hard-boiled detective noir sort of thing where the Happy Time Gang, which is a television show that Mm. features all of these different performers and one human, it goes off the air, and then one by one, the cast of the Happy Time Gang are being murdered. And our detective has to figure out who's killing the Happy Time Gang. And nothing about that story requires puppets. That's right. But the only reason that they put it in there is because it's something new and different to do with felt. And boy, they start off immediately letting you know what kind of movie this is going to be. We have a scene where the uh, detective goes into a porn shop to talk to (laughs) the proprietor of the porn store and they open up the curtain. And I kid you not, this is a thing I am not making up. 
there is an octopus jerking off a cow in the back room. Like, eight arms, multiple udders. Milking a cow? Yeah, that doesn't even make sense because, (laughs) exactly, but that is what we're supposed to see. This octopus is going to town on this cow's udders. There's milk going everywhere. Oh, yeah, within 10 minutes, this movie wants to make it known to everybody exactly what we can expect for the runtime. We get a line where our detective in the porn store asks to see a copy of (sighs) (laughs) Puppet Pussy Magazine. What? And when he receives a copy, he says the line, and I shit you not, it looks like this mystery is brought to you by the letter P. Oh. Mm Oh, geez. My God. So is that, I guess that's supposed to be funny. It is supposed to be funny. Get it? We're watching a Sesame Street movie. This is this is the Henson Company. Brian Henson hasn't made a movie for 22 years. So after Jesus. getting Muppet Treasure Island, what else could we get besides Melissa McCarthy debasing herself the instant she steps onto the screen? She bites a puppet in the dick. She snorts puppet coke through a oh licorice my. stick. Come on. In this movie, we get puppets that smoke, fuck, drink. The most obscene, silly string orgasm scene that you could ever imagine. If you were the sort of person to imagine a silly string orgasm scene. (laughs) Look, I I love a good dick joke. You know Mm -hmm. me. I can be I can be childish with the best of them. <laughs> Still, all these years, no matter how many times I watch Dumb and Dumber, Jeff Daniels on that toilet blowing ass makes me laugh out loud every single time. I am that guy. I have no shame about Absolutely. the kind of things that will make me laugh. Sure. I didn't get a single chuckle here. These things can work somehow. We all saw Team America World Police. There was graphic marionette fucking in that movie. (laughs) And everybody thought it was hilarious and it was brilliant. Because I think if there's a creative spark to the movie, if it's something that we haven't seen before, like Team America was, I think there's a novelty to that. But we've all seen Muppets. We've grown up with Muppets. We know what they look like. We know the aesthetic. We know the sensibilities of Henson. And so when we see something like that, transplanted into this just foul and gross world it isn't funny at best it sort of attacks your childish sensibilities to say hey remember that thing you liked when you were a kid Mm, we're gonna fuck it all up for you how do you like that yeah that's exactly how i felt when i saw the trailers for this because for me jim henson's sort of a untouchable but is jim henson rolling in his grave over this that's a really good question actually that i hadn't considered because certainly what we know about Jim Henson and the things that he was working on in his lifetime, you could never have foreseen this, which really makes me wonder what was Brian Henson's point here as a guy who is the steward of the Henson brand, who's responsible and must think an awful lot. No, not only about it from a business standpoint, from a family legacy legacy standpoint. Yeah. I have to wonder what was he, what was he hoping to accomplish here? The Muppets have this great place, that, that, this home in, in the audience's heart, and an expectation for where the Muppets were. So I wanted to be significantly more adult than that. I wanted to do something quite far from, from where the Muppets were. Maybe there's a version of this that could work. I don't think that it, it's a bad idea to say that the Muppets could be a little bit edgy in a feature film if they wanted to be. But you do not go from... Tim Curry is Long John Silver 
<laughs> Fast forward 22 years and I got an octopus jerking off a cow in 10 minutes. What is yeah. happening? Do you think that Henson had some sort of maybe dark stuff that he wanted to do? I know when you look at some of that, some of the stuff that he did in Labyrinth, some of the stuff that he did in The Dark Crystal sort of alludes to more mature themes and ideas, although it's they were very fantastical and they were never really mean-spirited or anything. Never. And that's what I got out of just the trailers and the certain scenes that I saw. It also seemed as if it was a direct stab at the legacy. You would have to think that there's some calculation, mm. some calculation going on here to say we are doing something that is absolutely the polar opposite from everything we have ever done, oh. which only gives you two options. He either thought this is going to be really good for the brand or this is going to be really bad for the brand. And I cannot imagine why the chairman of the Henson company would do something that was patentedly bad for his organization. I don't know if this is just a matter of nobody can tell a guy with the name Henson not yeah. to do something. Yeah, it could be If that. this was yeah. some kind of pet project or if it was just maybe some kind of catharsis. Maybe this was Henson and the puppeteers and all of the people who have made these family movies and these Elmo specials and Kevin Clash and all of these things for decades now. Of, and this might have been some kind of cathartic thing that mm -hmm. this creative team just had to get off their chest. That is me being extremely generous about right, exactly. how yeah. this might have happened. But really, it's just a horrific misfire. That's all what the it way comes through. down to. All the way through. Right down to the way I can't imagine anybody out there in film jitsu world is going to be upset with me spoiling the end of the Happy Time Murders. If you've <laughs> made it to the end of the Happy Time Murders, you're your own problem, not me. So <laughs> we identify the killer in this film as somebody who is knocking off the Happy Time gang because backstory that we get our detective phil phillips actually killed a civilian in the line of duty that was what divided him and melissa mccarthy and this happened in front of his young daughter this young daughter has now grown up and has decided to extract her revenge on this detective by killing off the happy time gang and everybody that he knew and all that kind of thing mm -hmm. his connection to the happy time gang is sort of tenuous i think he dated one of the actors in it it was elizabeth banks in a small role here but hmm. how we identify who this is is they have a suspect it's the femme fatale that comes into his office we don't right. know that there's a connection to the happy time gang with her other than the fact that there's no other characters in the movie hmm. they have an extremely graphic sex scene in his mm -hmm. office the aforementioned silly string all over everything scene right and we find out at the end that it is her this is revealed to us by i am not kidding you a basic instinct leg crossing oh. scene where the carpet matches the drapes. <laughs> yeah, I actually get a movie. This is what you did to me. <laughs> a couple days ago, I sat down in my living room and I watched a movie that had an actual puppet <laughs> vagina in it, which is a key plot point. Carpet matches the drapes. Puppet vulva that wow. is how this movie brings itself across the finish line did you see who framed roger rabbit did you I ever did. see it yeah i did yep it's this it's a very similar storyline like those are very similar the way the treatment of the puppets the way the treatment yep. of the cartoons they live side by side with each other they mm -hmm. you know there's a detective he's got a backstory there's a twist you know it's all it's a very similar movie and 
Roger Rabbit was actually trying to say something with the tunes. It was it was saying a little bit about prejudice. It was saying a little bit about racism. And it was a really entertaining movie, even when it got a little saucy. But it the never jokes went over were funny. the top. Yes. No, never. No. The jokes were funny. It got racy. It didn't yes. get filthy. And that is a real difference. It's yeah. one thing to be a little bit racy and defy expectations by having, in that case, animated characters looking like Jessica Rabbit looks, having the the baby, you know, with his big gruff voice yeah, and all yeah, that kind yeah. of thing. That's yeah. great. That's good stuff. That works. They just go right past all of that. They suck all the fun out of it. You know, the loony part of the tune is gone. And so <laughs> there's no loony in this thing. We just get depressing, sad. Just yeah. It's like it's a sad bastard movie from the start to the end. You Fair feel kind of gross watching it. It's one of those things where I felt like a loser oh. as I sat there watching. I was like, this that movie... Sucks. This movie is for a loser. This is like to sit to choose this and then sit through it on purpose on your own. And look, uh, hey, people are allowed to like what they like. Maybe there are some really big happy time murder fans out there. If there are people listening that feel completely differently about this movie, or if I'm not seeing something, if you have ideas, please drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you because I don't see what it is. It sounds like something that actually was devoid of joy. And is just a series of really bad mistakes playing out one after the other after the other. I felt really depressed watching Oh, it. this sounds awful. It was. It was really very depressing. In the same uh, way that Meet the Feebles is depressing because it's so depraved. There is no glimmer of hope. There's nothing yeah. good going on anywhere in that entire movie. Yeah, It's much more creative and inventive than mm-hmm. this is. This is, I think as I said, just trying to show the opposite side of the Henson coin, which is almost more an exercise than a movie, really. Sure. That's a hard movie to get into. It's hard to get a laugh out of that. I can appreciate wanting to try and keep the Muppet legacy going into another generation. And I don't know if this was an attempt to say, hey, how can we make... How can we make the Muppets edgy with the kids or something? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I just, like I said, there's so many questions that come out of this. <laughs> the, really, uh, what would be fantastic would be to sit down with Brian Henson and just beg the question. Yeah. I, if I had 30 minutes with the guy, I, I wouldn't want to ask him about his father or what it was like to have David Bowie in a movie done by that. I, I just want to ask him about the Happy Time Murders and what the fuck he was thinking. That's it. What the fuck were you thinking? <laughs> what the fuck? What are you thinking? Well, now that you're thoroughly depressed, Mike, and you've pretty much given up on life, (laughs) never laughing again, we may as well just go ahead and try to find five puppets or marionettes or dummies that are worse than the ones that you just watched. (laughs) And honestly, I don't know if that's even possible. The only thing keeping the happy time murders off my bottom five is that it was the main review. Because if, if we were in a world where we included our main review in a bottom five, this would have made it in a heartbeat. It really would have. It's, it is just that joyless. Here's the great news. The great news is 
we can only go up from here. This is the part where we get to be a little bit silly. We got to be the masters of our own puppet destiny here and come up with a list that we liked for our own reason. I'm actually looking forward to talking about some other puppets because I, the happy time murders was such a slog that I'm, I'm excited to talk about some other stuff. So I'm interested to hear what you came up with because I think there were a lot of different ways that you could go with this. I think I took a very conventional approach you tend not to do that. I don't know. So I'd like to hear what you had for your number five. Sure, sure. Well, let me just talk about my approach real quick before I give you number five. And that was to declare the five worst, as I said, puppets, marionettes, dummies, or what have you that simply pulled me out of the story of a movie. So they were ineffective puppets that interrupted a movie and pulled me out of the story. I thought that might have been the way that you went, like a shitty puppet, like a poorly <laughs> a crafted a yes. bad maid. Exactly. Gotcha. I thought so you might a, go that way. My number five from the never ending story in 1984. No, it's not Falcor. I wouldn't be that cruel. That damn thing is too cute. Love Falcor my luck dragon. Rules. Yeah. Gamork? The wolf creature thing? Uh-huh. That's a pretty bad looking puppet, man. <laughs> I can tell you that it's a pretty bad looking puppet unless you're a little kid. And then, and then it's a yes. very terrifying puppet. My sister is terrified of Gamork and she thought that her children would be just as terrified as she was when she was a kid and first saw it. She showed them never ending story. Gamork comes up and they laughed. They laughed. Wow. She, and, and her kids are not like my kid. You know, Justin, <laughs> Justin watched the thing at what? Age six. So much of that movie is so dark and has such dark, creepy puppets. <laughs> <laughs> it really does. But the one that always stands out for me as not being effective enough for the fear that it was supposed to portray is Gamork. So that's my number five. All right. Well, my number five, uh, also some dangerous puppets. I think <laughs> this is probably the most uh, pedestrian pick I could have offered you, but I am giving you the Puppet Master puppets <laughs> from the Puppet Master franchise, 1989. Direct to video, I think puppets as killers is kind of dumb. Charles Much... Band does not agree. Charles Band has been unagreeing with that. <laughs> Vehemently disagreeing with that multiple times a year for decades. You said it. This movie spun off, I don't know, what, 14, 15, 47 sequels. They keep adding more and more of these goddamn puppets. I know it involves Nazis somewhere along the way. I don't think the puppets are Nazis, but I think in recent years they've become Nazis. <laughs> there was a, a movie recently, I had to look this up, that's like Puppet Master, The Little Reich. Not oh, okay. Boy. Not okay. You oh, know what? Boy. Do not play it fast and loose with Nazis. Don't mm. do that. Nazis as villains is a little like, I don't know if we want to do that, but we definitely don't want to fucking do that with puppets, right? <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> I just I've never liked this kind of thing. The evil puppet, the scary puppet, the Annabelles, that kind of thing has never appealed to me. I'm always like, I don't know. That's a fucking puppet. Like, just if you burn it, it's dead. Yeah, right. Just kick it. There's so many, you know, (laughs) I know they put them in a, you put the puppet in the trash and then it's back in your bed and that's scary. If you light a puppet (laughs) on fire, man, that's the end of the puppet. I just, even as a kid, even as a kid who should have been scared by something like Chucky, I was like, I don't know. I think I could just kick the shit out of that thing. 
I understand that the scary thing is supposed to be that the adults or the people around you don't believe you when you tell them what's happening, but that's not really even a part of what Puppet Master is. Puppet Master is just these crazy little fucking murder puppets running all over right. the place. Exactly. Drilling into faces and stuff. Hilariously, my number four is also directed by Charles Band. <laughs> The, the Charles Band tribute list, uh-huh. This really, but it really is the Charles Band tribute yeah. list. If you're going to name the worst puppets in cinematic history, Band's name would come up over and over and over again. He was executive producer on Ghoulies. He was the producer of the Puppet Master movies, and he was the director of 1986's Troll, which everybody talks about Troll 2. Mm-hmm. And it was the and that was the subject of a of a funny and critically acclaimed documentary that's called Best Worst Movie. Really good. Which we is did really we did an fun. episode on Troll Two in the sure. early version of the show. Sure. Why the hell does no one talk about Troll? It is a terrible goddamn movie. It is monumentally tone deaf all the way through. Some weird, weird, weird things spun out of Troll. Number one is Harry Potter. The lead character, the father in the movie, the lead character, his name is Harry Potter, played by Michael Moriarty. Shortly afterward, J.K. Rowling makes the Harry Potter series. Not shortly afterward, this is some years later. And says that the name just kind of came to her. And Jean-Carl Beckler, who is the guy that did all of the troll special effects for Troll, thinks, yeah, you're lying. You totally took (laughs) pieces of our story, ideas that we had, and the name from our movie. Hey. I don't want to speak to any of that, but what I can say is John Carl Beckler made a really cool central troll in that movie that looked fantastic. And then there's a bunch of puppets, little puppets, and I swear to God, they basically, they have the quality of a homemade ashtray from the 80s that like a first grader would make. They're yeah. just, they, they, they look, they don't move, they don't articulate well at all. They're not well painted. They're not well assembled. And they're they're shot in a very flat way. So you're seeing them just, they look fake and dumb. They do this weird musical sequence with chanting and stuff. But I think one of the funniest things about the movie is you have Julia Louis-Dreyfus in it, which is crazy. It's one of her first screen roles, and she's acting opposite her real-life husband. So it's pretty crazy stuff. I mean, it's a weird, weird movie. The trolls do not work. The tone of the movie doesn't work. And ultimately, it makes number four on my list. I, I couldn't possibly argue with that. <laughs> not, not, not even not even a little bit. I, this one, for me, my number four, this is a movie that has a puppet in it. It's a central <laughs> plot point. It's a character. If I told you that there was a movie in 2011 where Jodie Foster hmm. directed Mel Gibson, you would think, man, if this was 1992, that would be sweet. <laughs> Unfortunately... The year was 2011, and the film was The Beaver. This is a movie directed by Jodie Foster from a script that was on the 2008 blacklist as one of the the best unproduced scripts. Mm. Gibson plays a character named Walter Black, who is a deeply depressed man who's ready to kill himself. He has destroyed his relationship with his wife and his children. Anton Yelchin is in this film. Jennifer Lawrence is in this film. Wow. Unfortunately... So was Mel Gibson right around a time that we all found out that this was not fun time Mel Gibson anymore. Mel Gibson had recently had assault charges. Mel Gibson's career was in a bad place. It was part Mm -hmm. of what took the movie so long to get made. 
In this film, at his lowest point, Mel Gibson meets a beaver puppet. Oh. And he puts the thing on his hand and starts <laughs> talking to it. And the whole movie is this guy. It's Mel Gibson doing the voice, moving his mouth, but using his more authentic Australian accent. And so now the entire family, everybody thinks this is how he's working through his psychological things. He lies to his family and tells them that this is part of his therapy and that he's supposed to be using this puppet to work through his issues. That is not true. He's just losing his mind. Wow. And so he reconnects with his family up into a point where, and again, I'm sorry if I'm ruining the beaver for you. <laughs> he actually finally decides the only way he can rid himself of this is that he cuts his arm off in a circular Jesus saw Christ. Good while God. he's wearing the puppet. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> and that, that kind of solves everything. And after that, he kind of goes back to being himself. It, You're kidding movie, me. No, this, no, he's fine after that. He's like, everything's fine. He reconnects with his family. He's fixed. He's fixed. He after he the, cut, cuts off his arm. Yeah, he severed the connection. This was one of the his, greatest unproduced screenplays of 2008 or whatever. Didn't need his family anymore. Come you on. Know, did, he didn't need the puppet anymore. Good God. <laughs> yeah. It was a monstrous flop. I think this movie cost 20-something million dollars to make, made something like seven back. You, you're watching Mel Gibson act, despite the fact that he is allegedly a horrible piece of shit. Oh, I man. say allegedly because, wink, wink, he's definitely a horrible piece of shit. I love the idea that I'm afraid that Mel Gibson's going to hear film jitsu and come after me, right? <laughs> Mel Gibson is unallegedly an actual just horrible piece of shit. And it sunk the movie, but he is a very good actor. He's good at his craft. You can't take mm. that away from the guy. Mm -hmm. So seeing him act with all of the emotion and all of the stuff that Mel Gibson can do, you know, he's a very expressive guy in his eyes yeah. and all of that. You think of him as Riggs in lethal weapon when he's kind of on the edge but he's he's doing it talking opposite yeah. a puppet that he's walking wearing on his own hand i think about him as hamlet yeah <laughs> it's like you know you did such a fantastic job as as hamlet he may be reprehensible but it is one of those things where you have to divorce or or you don't have to divorce the artist from the art with him i i don't know i don't know i i would have a tough time watching that one i'm i'm extremely intrigued by that it's, and i feel like that stupid. could be a it is my week to decide what you watch next. I could call an audible here. <laughs> well, my number three is going to come as a bit of a surprise from you, but I think you'll understand it once I explain the logic behind the choice. And that would be the puppet for Slimer in Ghostbusters 2 from 1989. And my big deal with this is, aside from Slimer in the original Ghostbusters, there hasn't been a good Slimer puppet. My big problem with Ivan Reitman just as a director is that he hates the special effects and the visual effects that Richard Edlin did for Ghostbusters, the original movie, the 1984 film. For whatever reason, it was a very rushed production. They had a lot of crazy deadlines that they had to meet. And I think it just sits in Ivan Reitman's head that this should have all looked better. Mm. Slimer in Ghostbusters was designed with a wink and a nod towards John Belushi and was stuffing his face with alcohol and, and food and everything else. And that was his shtick. And then obviously the real Ghostbusters TV show came out in the mid 80s and ran to the early 90s. And I, I was a big fan. I loved it. Got Slimer was, right. I think it's I think that's I the think best Slimer. Right, but it wasn't a puppet. That's an animated right. thing, right? Yeah. The movies tried to incorporate some sort of the cartooniness, right? Like 
remember Janine with the red hair? I sure do. You know, in the, right. In Ghostbusters 2, there are a couple shots with Slimer, a couple little mini, mini scenes. They're awful. He looks terrible. <laughs> I hate the way he looks. It pulls me right out every time I see him. And why the hell is he driving a bus? At the end, why is he? Why is he Lewis Tully's ride to the uh, museum? Why did they keep putting him in cars? Because he did the same thing in 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 Answer the Call. He was driving around in Ecto. He steals Ecto One. Is it because you don't have to show him flying? Are you getting around an effect by having him in a seat? I don't. I don't understand why it would be so difficult to show him flying. I mean, just show him coming out of hot dog carts again. I don't care. I like that. I thought it was great. You know, there will never be anything better than Slimer at the hotel in Ghostbusters. Yeah, and they keep trying to to incorporate him here and there and everything. They never get the designs right. Just leave him alone. He looked terrific. So Slimer from Ghostbusters Two, my number three. Well, my number three is absolutely a puppet that you should leave alone. Uh, it's it's a puppet that. You should leave alone so much, there is question about whether or not it really is even a puppet. Okay. Yeah. I'm going with the baby in David Lynch's 1977 film, Eraserhead. What a great choice. This is a notorious Hollywood puppet story. If you haven't seen it, in in the film, this is a, a baby that is clearly not a human baby. The movie does not make clear what it is. Is it an animal? Is it an yeah. alien? It's, But it's sickly. It looks creepy as hell because oh, yeah. the question that has always been, and Lynch has avoided answering this for years, is what the hell was that thing? Some people think it was a lamb fetus. Some people think maybe it was an actual human fetus, which is way too far out there. I, I do not personally mm-hmm. ascribe to that idea. Uh, notoriously, whether this is just Hollywood legend or not, the cast was... Uh, made to sign a release that they wouldn't talk about the prop. David Lynch has said in interviews that it was born nearby or found nearby. So he sort of alluded to the idea that maybe this was organic. Mm. And they took what might have been some kind of calf Mm. fetus and turned it into an articulating puppet. It it qualifies, I think, as a puppet. It does. Because that thing is not alive and it's not a a graphic effect. So it's there on the screen. Something is moving. I don't know what it is, but man, it is so unsettling and weird. It is so horrific. The sounds that it makes. It's that... Have you ever seen... You ever seen a baby squirrel? Like they're they don't have any fur yet, and their eyes are covered over, and they're all creepy and weird. Like they look like they're not done yet. That's mm. this thing. It looks like it looks like a horse fetus. It's yeah, so it freaking weird. If you have a strong stomach, I mean, Eraserhead is a tough movie to. Start oh yeah, for with. sure, for sure. A David Lynch movie. I think a lot of people would say this might even be a, a masterpiece of his. So many if, would say. I I actually really do like Eraserhead, and I find it that it's very interesting from the standpoint of if you think about where he was in his life at that time when he was making the movie, he was moving into becoming a new dad. He was becoming, you know, these changes were happening in him as well, and this is sort of how he put those feelings that he right. had out there. This sort of repulsion mm-hmm. to being a father and and from what i know i'm actually friends with jennifer lynch his daughter <laughs> so oh. it's like a it, an odd thing to be talking about right now to think about his daughter who it, he has a very good and loving relationship with but the fact that he was really dealing with so much worry concern and 
obviously nightmares and stress mm-hmm. and anxiety over being a dad that all play out in this grotesquerie that is Eraserhead. I mean, it is a fundamentally screwy movie and a weird experience. It really is. I applaud you for that one. That one came out of nowhere. Nice, I should have seen you. it coming. That was a great, nice. great choice. From David Lynch to John Hughes. <laughs> In 1985's Weird Science, there is a, t- a moment where Bill Paxton's hilariously funny Big Brother bully character Chet, who's square jawed, buzz cut, he's constantly chomping on a cigar. He has that classic line where he says, "How about a greasy pork sandwich served in a dirty ashtray?" <laughs> to his <laughs> to his drunk little brother. He is so wonderful, Bill Paxton, in this bully role. But at one point, he crosses Kelly LeBrock's magic synthoid crazy character there that was created from a Barbie doll hooked up to electroids. And he's turned into what can only be described, I guess, as Jabba the Hutt, but with pustules all over his body. And he's farting, grunting, burping. (laughs) There's flies buzzing around. He eats one. Uh Uh-huh. And while the voice is great, the design of the puppet is so outlandish. It's so weird that it throws me completely off kilter in a movie that otherwise I was riding shotgun with, right? (laughs) But the special effects in Weird Science are really good. I mean, you've got animated lightning and skewed perspectives via tilted sets. You've got reverse motion. You've got Kelly LeBrock's boobs. You know, all of these special effects are wonderful. And then you get this really repugnant, repulsive, and frightening thing. And it sort of undercuts this true payback that you wanted for Chet. My number two, the Chet Blob from Weird Science. The Chet Blob. <laughs> I don't know what else to call it. No, I, I, nor would I. Well, we've been dancing around this for a little while, and it seems like it would be a logical spot at number one. But here at number two on my list, it is now time that we actually talk about Peter Jackson's 1989 oh, Meet okay. the Feebles. This movie, I think, accomplishes what The Happy Time Murders fails to do. Mm-hmm. which is to be inventive and to push some boundaries in a way that isn't just off-putting while actually being a very, very gross early Peter Jackson thing. You know, so many people don't know what Peter Jackson's early filmography is. Oh, he was wacky. <laughs> All the way out there wacky. And I think Meet the Feebles, the entire, really you could pick any character from Meet the Feebles. It could be any one of them. But for yeah, me, did the you one, just pick the Feebles? Oh, no, you have one. I have one that for oh. me always jumps all the way out. It's Harry the Hare, the rabbit. Oh, absolutely. Yes. He gets puppet aids. <laughs> and he goes through the whole movie. He's supposed to be, I think, the MC of the Feebles show. He's the guy. He comes out of the canon, I think. And oh. he finds out that he's got the big one. He, he's not feeling good. And he goes to see. He gets, He has the big one, which I <laughs> think we're supposed to believe. It's age, I shouldn't right? be laughing at all. <laughs> no, but this, this is, is a awful. movie where... There's a fly that eats shit with a spoon. There's a sex crazed hippo lady. But it's gallows humor in its own way. For some reason, he manages to make it funny. And so I'm not a huge fan of the movie. I'm not. But there's something about, and Jackson did this with um, Brain Dead. And he did it with Dead Alive, too. He pushes boundaries. He pushes the envelope in a way that's inventive enough that it doesn't just seem outright unwatchable or gross. 
Harry the Hare, he becomes so gross and hard to look at in a movie that is full of things that are gross and hard to look at. (laughs) And you'll remember, I think maybe the best part is, is the way, and this has to do with that Peter Jackson creativity. In the end, as you may recall, we discover that Harry the Hare does not have the big one after all. He has what turns out to be bunny pox and if he takes two aspirin and spends a couple days in bed he's going to be all better he gets that news just as heidi goes on her rampage and he gets his head blown off with a machine gun right after getting this news so we spent this whole movie with this character who is slowly dying of a disgusting puppet disease only to find out he's gonna be fine but then he gets his head blown off A quality number two. I'm surprised it's not your number one, honestly. Um, so I'm I'm very intrigued to know what your number one is. I hope it's not the same as mine. There's no I... way. There's okay, no good, way. Good. All right. Because my number one is from a really phenomenal movie. One that I would consider probably the best vampire movie of the past 20 years. Quite possibly one of the best horror movies of the past 20 years. But it has one scene in it that is so dumb and terrible <laughs> that it actually loses the velocity that it could have attained you know you fly too close to the sun you got a much further way to fall sure and let the right one in from 2008 has a scene with puppet cats <laughs> where a new vampire is attacked by a bunch of cats because they sense her being of the undead and they're all freaking out. She walks into the house of a, of a person that hoards cats and they just attack her first. They're CG and that's somewhat laughable, but then there are several shots where she, where the actress is flailing about and writhing with all of these puppet cats all over her. It's laughable. It's stupid. She falls down some stairs. The cats are all attached to her. They're very clearly fake. <laughs> and it talk about stopping an incredible movie dead in its tracks. Mm. <laughs> really, really, really botching something. That one scene in director Thomas Alfredson's let the right one in from 2008 is oh, <laughs> leaves such a horrible taste in your mouth <laughs> and that's not pun intended sorry <laughs> i can't argue with you it's a, it's a rough scene that's for sure i guess i don't recall it stopping the movie in its tracks for me but cat puppets absolutely could bring a movie <laughs> to a screeching halt i see it i think if i gave you 500 years to figure out what my number one was you would never come close to it Because this is very, very personal for me. Okay. My number one pick is from the 1985 Sesame Street film, Follow That Bird. Oh. And I'm talking about the Dodo family. The Dodo family is this family of Dodo birds where some, some wise social worker, because of course social workers are the real problem all around the world. (laughs) Some social worker decides that Big Bird ought to live with a family of his own kind, not on Sesame Street. Right. And so the next thing you know, Big Bird is shipped off to live with the Dodos, who yeah. are this family of dumb birds. They change his name from Big Bird to Big Dodo. They yeah. almost run over themselves with their lawnmower. They're cartoonishly stupid. But 
This was the year 1985. Mike Merrigan is four years old at oh, the time. Oh my God. And I go to see this movie where Big Bird, this character that I love, is forced to leave his home and oh, move in geez. with people that aren't his oh, family. That's traumatic. And it was so upsetting to me at a young yeah. age. The idea that you could be taken from your family and forced into this living situation oh. that wasn't your own. <laughs> it, it upset me so much as a kid that even to this day, as a 40-year-old man, I occasionally have these dreams that I do directly attach back to follow that bird. <laughs> oh my God. Where I have this reoccurring dream where sometimes... I find myself back in my college dorm and I'm moving back into the dorm. Even though in my dream, I know I'm a grown man with a wife and a job and kids and the whole thing. <laughs> and so I'm in this dream rapidly trying to rationalize like, no, this is fine. Like, yeah, I'm back in the dorm, but that's okay. And you know, I can visit on the weekends and uh, it won't be for that long. And, and then I wake up with this, avalanche of relief of like oh for Christ's sakes thank god that's not happening but Holy I'm in smokes i'm in this dream where i'm trying to rationalize how moving into a college dorm again as a 40 year old man with a family is it's fine this is fine this is totally the fine. dodos really left a mark on you they my friend. really did <laughs> so fast forward fast choice. forward to now here i am at 40 being upset by these people all over again with the happy time murders in a very different way. But if I'm being genuine and honest for our listeners, yeah, I could have gone with something a little more funny or conventional, or I could have talked about marionette fucking. I could have talked about something like <laughs> we already magic. did. Mike. Yeah. Or, you know, Annabelle, <laughs> there are so many things that come to mind when you think of this topic. But for me, if I'm being honest with people, it's the goddamn Dodo family. That's awesome. They're sort of the Dursleys, right? Right. They're kind exactly. of a, they're a Dursley yep. kind of family. Oh my God, she stole from Follow That Bird too. Uh, my God, J.K. Rowling just wholesale uh -huh. ripping off That's everything it. from Troll to Follow That Bird. Our list is like the Da Vinci Code of where she stole all of her best oh. ideas. <laughs> oh, that's it, boy. We got to look for the Chet Blob in one of the seven books. <laughs> it's in there. I'm sure it's in there. You know what? It was probably under Snape's cape the whole time. <laughs> I don't know what Dumbledore had under those robes. It might have been a Chet Blob. Mike, we've talked about horse babies and Slimer, and the Chet Blob, Killer Puppets. <laughs> I'm done. I want no more strings. I want no more, you know, arm pulls. I want no more hands up butts. I'm done. No more puppets. I think we never need to talk about puppets ever again. I hope you're right. I truly I, hope I you're just, right. I just, I want to move on from this, this ugly chapter. <laughs> and I want to move to something that we really did enjoy this week. Please, Mike, would you please give me a staff pick? Give me something good to watch. I'm excited to give you this particular staff pick because last week you did an excellent job talking about a documentary when you talked about Hearts of Darkness, a really smart and clever thing to do. And so I decided that this week I would talk <laughs> about my own documentary. I would like to share with everybody the 2019 film Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, it's very good. 
It's yeah. a great movie. So it for really those is. who don't know, this is a documentary about Mark Patton, the actor who played Jesse Walsh in Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. This is a movie that has had quite a ride through the horror landscape over the years. When it came out in the 1980s, it was a movie that was sort of reviled at the time, certainly within the franchise, because it has very, very, very overt homosexual subtext in the film. In recent years, it has gone through a real significant reappreciation as now we have a much better and thorough understanding of queer film and queer cinema, especially queer horror. Uh, that's kind of going through a renaissance right now. Queer horror is is a thing and it is, it's fantastic. There's a lot of great stuff coming out of queer horror right now. And this is a movie where Mark Patton gets to re-examine what his experience in Nightmare on Elm Street 2 did to him as a mm -hmm. person who was a young, closeted gay man in 1985 who was in this film. The film did not do well. And he was blamed for the failures of this movie for a long time. The writer of the film, David Chaskin, basically said, if you didn't like this movie, if you thought it was too gay, it wasn't because of how I wrote it. It was because of Mark Patton. And he essentially Ugh. outed Mark Patton in Hollywood, who was young. His career was on the rise. He was working with Robert Altman. He had starred with Cher in a film. And this essentially obliterated his career, so much so that he, uh, he left Hollywood. Also, 1985, this is a time when the gay community was going through the AIDS epidemic and the Reagan years and all of that kind of stuff. And yeah, I think that the thing that always sticks with me is the scene where Chaskin and Patton meet face to face and have an interview with each other. The way they, it is so striking that you could put those two people together on screen and have that discussion happen. It could have been a real gotcha moment where he just wanted to scream at this guy that he blamed for ruining his life. And instead with, with such dignity, yeah. he sat down and said, why? I just want an answer in a way that wasn't, uh, he certainly didn't back down from his narrative, but it mm -hmm. wasn't just about comeuppance. No, it was it really, really Mark Patton wanting to have resolution yes, in his life. exactly. And us as an audience being let in on it. It's yeah. a great little documentary. If you're interested in Nightmare on Elm Street as a franchise, if you're interested in, in horror, if you're interested in queer horror or just a real human story, Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street has a little bit of all of that for you. It's really wonderful. Awesome pick, man. This is fantastic. I'm going to just talk about another goddamn 80s movie is what I'm going to do because <laughs> cool. that's what I do every cool. <laughs> every week. What I've been doing is I've been revisiting a lot of movies with my oldest son hmm. who's 11 years old. And <clears throat> this week we watched War Games from 1983. This was part of that smart kid genre of the 80s that would have included movies like the previously mentioned Weird Science, you know, Real Genius, which is also one of my favorite movies probably of all time, and The Manhattan Project. Smart kids were just sort of everywhere back then, you know, science and such. While this movie certainly is dated in some ways, I think it, you need to give it some credit for being prescient with the way it deals with the dangers of technology and how that might affect war. This was before Skynet. It was a year before Cameron's Terminator. 
but the Whopper computer definitely is a precursor to Skynet. And it's the first cinematic treatment of now common tropes and everyday issues like hacking and remote computing. This was the first time you ever saw these concepts. And it's amazing how well this movie holds up. How suspenseful it is, how fun a lot of it is. Matthew Broderick, very at the very beginning of his career with Ali Sheedy, who was at the very beginning of her career, this they would both be superstars. He, because of obviously Ferris Bueller's Day Off, her because of The Breakfast Club. The two of them have remarkably good chemistry as teenagers, as real feeling teenagers. And then when shit starts to get real and the tension mounts, the movie gets pretty dark. It starts pretty dark. And it has this really riveting sequence at the very beginning where two military men have to turn the keys to launch warheads and one of them can't turn the key. And the whole movie is premised on this, a machine can do it better because humans will stop. They'll, they won't be able to turn the key. And they said something like 30 odd percent of the people in this drill, it was a drill, could not turn the key. And that's a very tense sequence that opens the movie. The rest of the movie really builds on that. What happens, of course, is Broderick is remoting in. He's trying to find a video game company. And he's calling up all these different numbers. And he ends up dialing into NORAD and manages to crack the code, find a backdoor password in, and decides to play global thermal nuclear war. And the concept is idiotic, right? Like this machine is then going to decide that it's actually going to launch missiles, etc. But the military actually put all of the power into the machine to do so. Right. That it could crack the nuclear codes and then it could actually send these missiles. The ending of this movie, Mike, is so suspenseful and so exciting visually it's so impressive the set for norad with these giant screens and these really like fairly i mean super antiquated digital maps that are all lit up on mm. these boards and then you see the missiles coming over it goes i got goosebumps it's so scary the way that they cut these the sequence together have you seen more games or you've not seen i haven't it? seen it probably since i was a kid oh you need to see it again I'm just telling you right now. It sounds it is great. So worth I, watching. Yeah, I absolutely. I think it's My one of those movies that I think like, oh yeah, I've seen war games. But you know, sure. as you're describing some of that stuff, I don't remember all of those things, and it sounds awesome. My son absolutely loved this movie, and I don't know if he was just trying to appease me because clearly I was enjoying the hell out of it, <laughs> or if he if it really did connect. It felt to me like it was really connecting to him, and I think it has a really important message at its core. So, 1983's War Games, directed by John Badham. Check it out. That sounds fantastic. You mentioned a couple things that I really like in a movie. I really think that a movie where antiquated technology is a part <laughs> of the plot, I find just interesting when it's done well. A movie I love is Cloak and Dagger, kind of a similar oh, yeah. time. Same this year. Kid, yeah, this kid, Dabney Coleman in both of those movies too. Yes, that's right. Where he has this Atari game that's actually got like the secret plans for the military muckety mucks whatever it is and all the bad guys are chasing after him right i think honestly for all the joking about the harm that technology does i think one of the the biggest harms that technology has done is smartphones have made screenwriting a lot harder 
horror movies, just horror They've movies. They made it a lot Every, lazier. <laughs> every well, everybody yeah. has to contend in a horror film with why the phone doesn't work. That's a yeah, thing you have always. to do in a movie now. You never had to deal with that in a Texas Chainsaw Massacre. No. Now you're going to have to deal with that in a Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, that's fair. No, I see what you're saying. Yeah, for sure. For so, sure. Yeah, what, what a great, what a great, you know, here we are in our age of technology, that little time <laughs> capsule that you're talking about. Yeah, I need, I need to go back and check it out. That's a great pick. Thank you. Well, Jason, we're at the time here in the show where I get to extract my revenge for the happy time murders. And it feels like no matter what I do here, it's a losing effort. Certainly it's (laughs) going to take a while to overcome the happy time murders move. Uh, I think maybe this week I'm going to give you the beaver directed by Jody. Fa- no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> More Muppets. <laughs> I wanted to try to think, okay, how, how can we go as far away from the happy yeah. time murders Great. as possible? We need a different vibe here. For sure. I'm going to go with a movie that is long. Oh. That's not really the point, but it is long. Oh. Uh, it's a movie that seems to have an awful lot to say. Not all mm-hmm. of it said very well. Some actors, I don't know so much how you feel about. Oh no, I feel like I know what this is. I'd love to hear what you think it is. It's not Crash, Paul Haggis's movie Crash, is it? No, but I asked so that I can add Crash to the list. See what I oh, did you just fucker. there? Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> no, no, no. Next week, I would like you to sit down with a film called The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Oh no! It's da- it's David Fincher's movie, that one with um Brad Pitt, and he yep. ages backward. Aging backwards. You've never seen it? <sighs> no, I haven't. I, I I have a tendency to stay away from Fincher. I I I just there's something about him. I loved him as a music video director when he used to do Madonna videos and Aerosmith videos, and then he made Alien Three, and I was scarred for life. <laughs> Which is funny because I do the exact opposite. Fincher for me is one of my favorite directors oh. I, I mean i absolutely i know you love, love zodiac i think yeah. Zo- i think zodiac is yeah, i know is an all-time it is good uh, like it when is. they talk about films a hundred years from now zodiac is going to be a movie they talk about he followed zodiac up with the curious case of benjamin button <laughs> oops <laughs> oops oops indeed all two hours and 46 minutes of the oh, curious case you. of benjamin button which oh i have God. to say i want you to know honestly the length of this movie is not a part of my motivation. I, I feel a little bit bad that I'm giving you another long one. But man, there is an awful lot going on in the curious case of Benjamin right, well, Button. Now, the elements are there. The elements are there. You might come back and say, Mike, I fell in love with this movie. I think David Fincher is a great director. Brad Pitt, Kate Blanchett, Tilda Okay, Swinton. I do love her. I love them both. Yeah. Tilda Swinton, Kate Blanchett, you've got me. There's possibility here. This is a legit movie made with real talent. This yeah. is not a meet the feebles kind of situation. It's my out of Africa. It's your out this of is, Africa. That's of right. Africa. It's your out of Africa. Fair enough. And so this is a movie about a baby that is born old and ages backwards, which is a hard thing to imagine if you have like, you're like, how the hell is that going to like, is there a little, wait till you see it. I can't wait to hear you talk about it, but we have to have a bottom five for this. And so I decided to maybe keep it a little bit simple here. We're going high concept for the movie. Let's go, let's go easy breezy with our bottom five. I would like to do our bottom five 
diseases. This is a guy who's got a condition. It's yeah. a weird one. Film gives us an awful lot of weird medical conditions. So let's go ahead and do our bottom five diseases. Sounds good. Yeah. Why did Lorenzo's oil be the first thing that jumped in my head? That's a good <laughs> question. That? Why? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All I can see is Susan Sarandon and Tommy Lee Jones now. <laughs> yeah. Why were they ever? Why were they married in a movie? What? <laughs> <laughs> Whose idea was that? <sighs> okay, Mike. Thanks. That's going to be great. I can't wait to watch it. Thanks very much. Fantastic. <laughs> this, is, this has been Heavy Sarcasm brought to you by Jason Santa. All right. Well, with that, my sentence has been posed. Until next time, I was one of your hosts, Jay. and I'm still one of your hosts, Mike. Whatever. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs> Zimnate, hoću znat sve kate, vježbat ću sate i sate Karate, karate, jedno ću dok zadnji mi kjaj Oh, fuck me. Alright. <laughs> you're right. No, you're right. You're right. We never I talked haven't. about it. I haven't. I guess I meant I hadn't yet talked okay, about it. Watch this. Watch what I'm going to do right now in your face. Let's see how you like this. <laughs>